Okay, stop where you are. I just want to open with prayer. I know there are people coming around with handouts, but that's okay. Just stand right there. And, uh, and we'll get going. Great uh, prayer upon entering today, so we'll pray that one. Let us pray. God our Father, life of the faithful, glory of the humble, happiness of the just, hear our prayer. Fill our emptiness with the blessing of the Eucharist, the foretaste of eternal joy. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so there should be two handouts coming around. One is from last week, and um, one then is new. So if you brought your stuff back from last week, you only get one. should be from the large catechism. Um, If you didn't bring back your stuff, then you should get two, an outline and something from the large catechism, okay? Uh, Let's pass this around. Betty, I'm going to start over here, so you're the last one to get it. Take 10% off the top for yourself, and then hand it back to me. This goes to Russia. Um, That's a very good thing. We've got good Lutheran friends over there. We're now officially an altar and pulpit fellowship, so that's a blessing. Um, So if we can help them out, that would be great. Also, I do want to make one more pitch for work days. I mean, have any of you been over there in the past week? Raise your hand if you've been over there in the past week. Good. So about three or four of you. Um, It looks like a completely different space. Uh, The drywall is up. You know, the, um, the beams have been framed in. The altar platform is coming together. We went out to see the woodworker last week who is doing the altar platform, doing the chairs, doing all those sorts of things. So there's a lot to do, um, but the end is in sight. So if you could please give us, and I mean this seriously, if you can please give us an hour or two or three or four on either Monday or Wednesday, that would be great. Starting at 6 o'clock, you know, maybe till 9 if you want to stay later, great. But there's painting, there's sweeping, there are ceiling tiles to put in. There's lots to do. Um, So please come help us. Men, women, children, doesn't matter. Uh, We need some folks out there to get this thing going. So, um, you know, I gave the men a pitch about the men's retreat. And in one Sunday, about 40 of you signed up. So let's do the same thing with Monday and Wednesday across the street, okay? Men, women, everybody, we'd love to have you there. Um, We will have you out before the Bears game starts. Someone said to me, yeah, it is at two. We're going to cut the last service short. <laughs> Are any of you Packer fans? Okay, then I won't say what I was going to say. I'll hold off. I heard a great joke before this Bible study, but since so many of you who are very influential people are Packer fans, I won't say it. Like me. <laughs> hey. We don't want the vicar picked on. A picked-on vicar is a beaten-down vicar, isn't a successful vicar. Okay, um, you know what, whoever had the... Good, thank you. I need one of these. I was nervous. I thought I'd lost my outline with all my notes. Um, when I go off the cuff, it's fun for me. It isn't fun for other people. So uh, it's good I found them. Okay, uh, I just want to, I want to carry on. I do want to go slowly and prayerfully and thoughtfully through all of this because I think it's that important. Um, as I told you last week, you know, understanding the ministry and understanding um, the role of faithful laity is at the core of what being a Christian is all about. If we don't understand this, we can never be successful. Um, and I've given you examples of how I think the church as a whole has not been successful in this area. Um, but if we can get back on track, sort of you know, move the ship back on the right course, we're going to be just fine. So... 
I know I didn't get far last week. Um, some of you would like the pace to go faster. Some would like it to go slower. I think it's good where it's at. So we'll keep right there. Um, but does anybody have any questions from last week? Anything you're burning to ask? I know we didn't, I know we didn't get sort of very far, uh, but we did get through some of the biblical examples. Is there anything you're just dying to ask about these first three or four Bible verses? Yes. Yes? I use the word disciple in John 20? John does. Oh, yes, okay. Good question. Um, well, we should probably look at John 20. Hopefully I brought a Bible. <laughs> Flip open in John 20. I got one, thank you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 20, the night of the resurrection. Ah, yes, okay, good. Let me just look at one thing while we're standing here, while I'm standing here. The question is, how does John's use of disciple fit together with my use of apostle? Um, And obviously the next logical question is, if this is disciples and disciples aren't limited to the apostles, could not... um, Well, you know what? I'm going to ask you what your question is instead of putting words into your mouth. What's the question behind the question? Good. Can you tell I've heard this question before? Uh, I think I think what you're trying to say is if this isn't limited, how do we know this is limited to the apostles, right? First thing is, um, I mean, just by the context, uh, John is, as you know, John is not considered one of the synoptic gospels. So synoptic is just a fancy way of saying seen together. Optic, vision, sin together. So a way of seeing together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. And in some sense, the stories and the routine, I mean, they take you know various deviations, but for the most part, Matthew, Mark, and Luke sort of tell you the same story, just in different ways. John actually, in some sense, tells you a very different story. Um, John begins with, um, you know, at his time, at John's time, John, John, of course, was the youngest of the disciples, and so he probably lived the longest, maybe 80 or 90 AD. At John's time, One of the great heresies that were floating around was the heresy of Gnosticism, where thinking was more important than sort of existing in your flesh. And in fact, um, it was understood at that time that matter, body, was bad, and brains were good. Um, And so how does John start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and then verse 14, and the Word became flesh. So right away in John's gospel, he defeats the Gnostics. But as you see in John's Gospel, there's a lot missing, or I wouldn't say missing, there's a lot that's said differently than in the other three Gospels. For example, in the other three Gospels, you have the institution of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You don't have that in John's Gospel, at least not at first glance. Where do you have in John's Gospel the institution of baptism in the Eucharist? Say that again? John 6 is one spot, yeah. My flesh is true bread. Where else? Where they both come together, yeah. The crucifixion, his side is pierced, and John's the only one who tells you what comes out, blood and water. 
So you have blood and his body, Eucharist, and you have water pouring forth, baptism. And Lutheran painters and artists, for example, Albrecht Dürer is very famous for this, where he depicts the angels at the side of Christ with a chalice, sort of sopping up the blood. That's a Eucharistic image. He also pictures um, the disciples standing beneath the cross and the water from the side of Christ pours over them. That's a baptismal image. So John never quite says what the other Gospels say so clearly. So part of it is understanding you know, what John is writing about. John is not writing a Gospel like the others. So his terminology could be very different. The other thing is just the context. Um, oftentimes people say a lot of the sayings of Jesus apply to the whole church. If you just go back and look at the context, the question is to whom is he speaking? Here's a great example. Um, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, 16 to 20. Um, it's commonly understood that the Great Commission belongs to the entire church. And in a broad sense, it does. It's the church's task to make disciples and make them stronger. But he doesn't say apostles there. He says disciples. To whom does he speak the Great Commission? To his 12. So just the use of terminology, I don't think... Um, negates the fact that he's speaking to his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. Actually, at this point, it's 11, um, because Judas has already hanged himself. Ten. Ten. Yes, that's right. Yes, because Thomas isn't, thank you very much. Uh, But he'll get to Thomas in due time. So, uh, you know, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to the 10 who remained with him the whole time. And there are some, uh, you notice who's the first who hear of the resurrection John 20, first verse, Mary Magdalene. So uh, actually he goes to the women first, um, or the women encounter him first. And then he says uh, in John, chapter, or John 20, 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The disciples were there for fear of the Jews. That's the ten. That, I mean, he's not, he's not selected any other disciples. Disciple doesn't take on a broader term until the church continues to exist. So today... We would say the apostles were the 12, and disciples are all believers. Let me summarize for you, because right now I can tell you all are very confused. Every apostle is a disciple. Not every disciple is an apostle. In the upper room, in John 20, all he's selected thus far are the 12 apostles, and 10 remain at this point. To whom is he speaking? To those 10. Okay. Do you have a longer, bigger question? Be- I don't Yeah, I don't... Um, actually, John uses oftentimes those terms interchangeably. Um, so I don't... I, I mean, I don't think you can make the point that the that the disciples here... So, I mean, who would it be? So I'll put the question back on you. Who are the people in the upper room then? So the, Okay, good. So then you have to push it all the way to its logical conclusion. And then one of the great Lutheran hermeneutics for reading Scripture is Scripture interprets Scripture. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't base your understanding of the ministry, or John 20, solely on this one particular text. You would read it with the rest of Scripture, 
which makes it clear to whom does he give the keys, Matthew 18 and Matthew 16. Right. Peter stands in representation of the apostles slash disciples. And in Matthew 18, then he hands those keys. And you remember what happens in Matthew 18, a very strange thing. He says, if the apostles get together, or the 12 disciples, and decide anything, um, it goes for the rest of the church. So you have this very interesting thing where the disciples stand. If I had a board here, if the vicar brought me a board, did you bring me a board? Packer fan. Uh, You have this very interesting thing where Peter stands on behalf of the apostles, and the apostles stand on behalf of the church. So uh, Peter is the chief among the apostles, but the apostles, what goes for them goes for the rest of the church. And we'll see this in a minute. I kind of want to, I mean, partly I want to deflect your question a bit because I don't quite know what, I know what you're asking, but I don't know what the conclusion would be. What are you trying to get at? What's the thing you want to know? Yeah. I don't think my whole... Were you here last week? No, I listened to it online. Well, online, who knows what happens in translation. I mean, who's in charge of the online version? Mary? I listened to it online. Likely story! (laughs) No, I believe you. Here's the thing. I don't actually... um, I don't... I actually completely disagree. In fact, I think my entire argument is based on Adam as proto-priest and Jesus as the fulfillment of Adam, and apostles and pastors standing in the stead of Christ. I think my my argument is based on that. My argument is not based entirely on John 20. Although I would say um, John 20 is the institution of the ministry but in the same way that Matthew 18 is. I guess I, I don't... What's the conclusion you want? Okay, good, then let's keep going. Okay, so... Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. So partly it's I mean, I would like to carry on. I would like to get to actually the New Testament priests. I don't think... Well, reading John in its context, I don't think you can make that argument. You maybe think you can. I don't know if you can. But I think we should carry on and try to figure out what this is all trying to say. Because whether or not you're right or wrong doesn't actually make a whole lot of difference to the whole topic. Because you have Matthew 16 and 18 saying the exact same thing. So either way, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Does it? <laughs> okay. All right. Anything else? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, yes. Go ahead.
yeah, in its apostolic context, a disciple, as in an apostle, is one who's sent to um, forgive and retain sins. A disciple, as in a follower, all of those who come after the apostolic institution are learners of Christ, students. That's all of you, right? Who had a question back there? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the reason you know that. Yeah. Yeah. And partly the reason you know that these that these remaining men in John 20 are apostles is precisely because of what the Lord says to them, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. And the Greek word there is apostolos. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to remember, I mean, these apostles are, and you see this in uh, Acts chapters 2 through, you know, 6 at least, these apostles are out very quickly finding other men to be pastors. It's not like these 12 sort of go on for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and don't ordain anyone. In fact, um, and this is a longer discussion, but in Acts when it says, um, for instance, in, uh, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 14 and particularly 15, where it says the apostles were gathered together with the brothers, there's very strong evidence that brothers there is what? The ministerium. The apostles are the bishops or the cardinals. They're in charge of the apostolic college. And the brothers, then, um, are those who are put into place to serve the people. So it's not like you can't make the point from Acts chapter 15 that somehow everybody took a vote and they decided this is what they were going to do. But that's for, that's for a later discussion. Somebody other hand. Joe, yes. Yeah. Himself calls himself to be a shepherd. Yeah, right. Very intimate relationship the shepherd has yep. with the flock. Mm-hmm. You know, my voice, you know, the shepherd stays close to the flock mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. forth. And so my question is sort of about that image and doesn't isn't that part of the conversation that we have in Yeah, at some at some point it will be. Um we're right now trying to get the um Right now, we're trying to figure out the content of the ministry. We, don't, we haven't quite gotten to the use of the ministry yet. And one of the uses of the ministry is shepherding. For, for instance, uh, St. Agnes Day. Was that just this week, Vicar? Last week. Last week, good. You're a good car salesman. St. Agnes. Okay, St. Agnes Day. You know what happens, at, what happens in uh, some more ecclesially-minded churches on St. Agnes Day is... Um, you know, they bring in a lamb on, you know, Agnes Day, so they bring in a lamb, and they'll often shear the lamb for the wool. And then if you've got Catholic friends, have you ever seen a, an archbishop or um, a cardinal wear what's called the pallium, the white piece? You ever seen that? 
That's made every year from the lambs that are sheared. So the, so the Pope blesses these two lambs. They bring them in on big... And you think they're about to slaughter them, you know? These lambs are looking up, and the Pope blesses them. They, of course, don't kill them, but he blesses them, and they use the wool to make the pallium. And the pallium, why is it made out of wool? For precisely what Joe just said. It's the image of a shepherd. So when the, when the archbishop, who's shepherd of the church, puts this thing on, what does he don on his shoulders? Wool, sheep, the lambs. That's why good vestments should have some amount of wool in them. Right? Anyway, I didn't see this anywhere that you were going, so if you're going to get to it later. Well, again, I think it's not content, it's use, and we're not quite to the use point yet. So when we get there, we can talk about that. Okay? Any questions on the biblical text, though, from Adam, Old Testament priests, Jesus? We've talked about the Twelve. Um, and, of course, as I said, and I think the... the um, um, I think the point that Jonathan made is a good one, that in its context of John 20, you may not have them called apostles, but what the Lord does to them in the Greek is he apostoloses them. He sends them out. So it's all about reading in its proper context. It's also about reading Scripture in light of Scripture. And so we don't take one verse and sort of uh, separate that from the others. For instance, point D, you see there are a number of citations that sort of interpret each other. John 20... Uh, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, again Matthew 19, and then Luke 22. Now, part of the job, Adam, Old Testament priests, Christ, apostles, and this is where it starts to get a little sticky, um, part of the job, and this does get to use now, part of the job of an apostle, point D, very end of the first page, is to forgive and to retain sins. And we talked about that last week. Um, some people had some questions about what it means to retain, and I told you the default is always to forgive. Good. Um, and that leads to the broader mission, which is, one, to make disciples and make them stronger, top of page two. So, again, I don't want... What you shouldn't hear in all of this is a sort of a... Um, certainly not an elitist mentality and certainly not a separation mentality. The task of making, and, and making disciples and making them stronger belongs to the 12 apostles. But that's carried out in real time by whom? The church. Okay? Yeah, by those who come under the apostles' care. They can't, just like I said in the sermon last week, Jesus couldn't do it all by himself. Um, And I know he could snap his fingers and do it, but that's not the way he works. Jesus has always been a Lutheran, right? (laughs) He always works by means. So, you know, there's never a time when Jesus sort of snaps his fingers and says, here's what I'm going to do. He always works by someone else because the task is very large. So he works by apostles, and then apostles work by lay folks. Making disciples, making them stronger, and the second part of that then is tending the church. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel and those who sit in the seat of authority within the church, as those who sit in the seat of authority within the church, the new Israel. If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 19. Somebody go to verse 28. Somebody who's got that there, go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. And Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Good. And the new Israel, of course, is what? The old Israel are the people who wandered. What's the new Israel? Do you know? The church is the new Israel. So these 12 apostles are given 12 thrones within the new Israel upon which they will judge the church. And we'll discuss this in just a minute. I want to get through the next part here. From the apostles, then, um, passed on by the laying of hands, comes the ministry all the way down to today. So you have Jesus. Let's start back before that. You have the Father, who sends the Son, who sends the apostles, apostolos, John 20, who then go out and ordain other men for ministry. And how they do that is described by St. Paul in 1 Timothy. So, point E. Knowing that the work of the church and the apostles must go on, the twelve put other men into place to serve as pastors and or priests in Christ's church. The putting into the ministry, and that should be reminiscent of Genesis, uh, Genesis 1, came through the laying on of hands. The Lord himself did it. Somebody open up 1 Timothy 1.12, especially if you've got an NIV. Let's see, I think that might be right. 1 Timothy 1.12, if you've got that. And somebody open up to 1 Timothy 4.14, somebody else. 1.12 is the first one. You have that, Val? Go ahead and read that. Good. The word there for appoint is themenos, which is the word for put, which in the Greek Old Testament is the same word that's used when it says the Lord put Adam into the garden to work and keep it, the two verbs for the priesthood. So who did the verbs? Who puts people into the ministry? God does. Christ does. Which means you can never say that the call to the ministry isn't divine. The call to the ministry is utterly divine because God himself does it. And it's a different call that's given, that's given from other people. Other people have various calls, various vocations. And in some sense, those calls are God's calls as well. But this one, in specificity, is a divine call because God puts people in place to tend his church. Who has 114? Or 414, I'm sorry. Maddie, you have that? Right. Do not neglect the gift that was given to you by prophecy. And that, that's interesting because it means the idea of putting men into place isn't our idea. It's the Lord's idea. He says, for all of time, this is how we'll do it. Do not neglect the gift that was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders, and the Greek word there is, uh, you know, uh, presbuteros, which is the pastorate. Remember, there's three levels in the Bible. There's a bishop, there's a pastor, and there's a deacon when the council of pastors put their hands on you. And classically throughout the scriptures, um, the gift refers to what or to whom? Jesus, um, more specifically, now think John 20, when Jesus gives the gift, what does he give? Yes. Uh, Yeah, the word is good, but keep going. The Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. So um, we pray at every ordination, send your Holy Spirit upon this man. And we'll look at the ordination, right, if we can get to that today, if not next time. And people will say, well, doesn't he already have the Holy Spirit? I hope so. (laughs) I hope he's got him. But just because you have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean the Lord won't give him to you again. For instance, at confirmations, what do we say? Send the Holy Spirit, right? At weddings, we say, bless them by your Holy Spirit. 
When we install teachers, what do we say? Send them your Holy Spirit. So the whole idea that people get a second outpouring, or maybe more, of the Holy Spirit is completely compatible with Scripture. This is the way the Lord works. Believe me, it takes an extra dose of the Spirit to be a mother, a husband, a wife, a teacher, a pastor. Okay? And you remember, in its most basic form, the definition of gospel is what? The Lord giving you more. Right? So, the putting into the ministry came through the laying on of hands. The Lord himself did it. It wasn't my idea. Believe me, if it was my idea, I'd have different ideas. That wasn't a joke, Val. You should tell your husband to flee. But he did it through the hands of others. 1 Timothy 4.14 And the laying on of hands delivered the gift, the Holy Spirit, for the specific task of presiding over Christ's church. Yet the imposition of hands was not a New Testament invention. Nobody can say this is sort of... um, This is a modern idea, or it's not necessary. On the contrary, the imposition of hands was used in the Old Testament to do two things. One, transfer religious authority from one leader to another. Hmm, That's what a bishop does. And to appoint the Levites for priestly ministry. When they made a Levite a priest, what do they do? They put hands on him. In reality, therefore... By Jesus' institution of the holy ministry in the upper room, John 20, and the continuation of that ministry by the twelve, the Lord is recreating the church which he intended to live forever in Eden. What went for Adam goes for us, Christ's pastors. The goal of all of this, and this is what you have to see, the goal of all of this is to bring everything back into orbit around Christ, which means bring everything back to Eden. And he does what he did in Eden. He puts like he put Adam. He does like he did in the Old Testament. He transfers authority through the laying on of hands. He does what he did in the upper room. He delivers the Holy Spirit. Why? So the church can go home to Eden. That's the reason. Okay? That's the reason. That's why the call of a pastor is a divine call. It's God's call. It's God's way of recreating what went horribly wrong back with Adam and Eve. Does that make sense? It's not along. Okay? Good. Thank you very much. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yep. Exactly right. Which is why, you remember what I said about four and a half minutes ago, was that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given through touch and through means for a variety of reasons. In fact, uh, last night the vicar and I were at the hospital till about 8.39 o'clock. Saw three people, one in the ER, um, one up on the third floor who didn't know he was on the third floor, and... Uh, as we were walking out to the elevator, um, there was a large group of Hispanic folks, you know, kind of congregating. And uh, you could tell they were waiting for us to engage. 
And we just kind of said hello, and you know, they said, hi, Father, how are you good? I said, is there someone we can pray for? Um, what was the gentleman's name? Rosalio. We prayed for him this morning. Rosalio, he's my, he's my uncle. He's dying in 3313. I said, can we see him? Yes, you can see him. So we walk in, and Rosalio knows no English. Um, and I know very little Spanish. I just said, no habla. Um, and we walked in, and thankfully the vicar knows a little Spanish. Um, but that was an instance where I actually gave him last rites, the commendation of the dying. And part of that is to deliver the Holy Spirit through touch, through oil, right? James, the book of James, have the elders come and pray over you and anoint you and you'll be healed. So there are plenty of instances where the Holy Spirit is given, um, but some in a more specific way for a specific task. You're right, Timothy is sent out as a missionary, um, but just like missionaries who are sent out today, if you're a true missionary, what happens? You're sent from a bishop, and how are you sent? With the laying on of hands, to go out, so your mission, so your congregation is the world, right? So you're right. Did he did he serve, um, you know, the local church in Rome, you know, St. John Lutheran Church in Rome? No. Um, did he serve the world as a pastor? Yeah, very much so. So true pastors, you can't call yourself a missionary um, without being sent by a bishop, sent by the Lord, um, through the laying on of hands. Lots of people go on and go out and do lots of good mission work. But the Lord has a better mission plan, which is he puts pastors into place and send them out. Now, here, I'll tell you our fault as Lutheran. What's our fault as Lutherans? We're not very good at supporting missionaries. Right? Not anymore. So what happens? Guys can't survive on their own. They don't have cash. And we say, so then we ask questions like, what happens to all those people who don't hear the gospel? Guess what? That's the wrong question. Why is it the wrong question? We should fork over some cash to send out some missionaries. So that's what's changed. The way the Lord has set up the church is pastors go out and serve congregations and serve the world. Lay people come under their care and help them in that task. But this is very basic biblical stuff. Um, and we are, in, in many respects, and this is where your work has been very good, Jonathan, we're in many respects to blame for this because we haven't been able to help support those folks who need our care. Okay? So a few observations. According to the biblical mandate, priests and or pastors, and really those, those terms are interchangeable. Um, they, they have a different connotations, but both are regarded, or both are reserved for the priestly ministry. Priests and or pastors have a few primary tasks. To bless, remember number six, that's the benediction every week, the Lord bless you and keep you. To forgive, John 20, Matthew 16, Matthew 18. To receive, this is a great one, Melchizedek, right? Abraham comes back from battle. What does Abraham do? Very first thing when he sees Melchizedek. Gives him 10%. <laughs> now that would be great. If you didn't have to ask for it. If they just came back and said, Hey, Melchizedek, Mel, Pastor Mel, Pastor Mel. Pastor Mel, you're the pastor. Here's 10%. And then you remember in Hebrews it says, uh, Melchizedek is without beginning or ending. And... Uh, off the record, Melchizedek, of course, is whom? Jesus. Yeah, right. To receive. And then you have this great account. Go to Acts chapter 4. Somebody go to Acts 4, 34 to 37. I'll actually read it because I've got it right here. Acts 
Acts 4, 34 to 37. Now just listen to the, to the way they describe this, this early church congregation, this early church ministry. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Isn't that great? Not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, um, you know, part of the job of an apostle and part of the job of a pastor is to receive what the Lord's peoples, what the Lord's peoples, what the Lord's people give. Why is it important for a pastor to receive what the Lord's people give? Why is that important rather than the treasurer or one of you? Yeah, partly it's operating in the stead of Christ. Christ's job is to give gifts. What else? Who knows where the most need is at in this congregation? Yeah. I mean, part of the trouble is, and this is, I think, why it works so well, at least in the start of Acts. Who knows what happens after that? But the way it works so well is who knows the most need, who knows where the most need is in the book of Acts? The apostles. Because they're dealing with people every day. There are people that I see, that Bruzek sees, that Nelson sees, even that the vicar sees, talks to, cares for, that you don't even know are in need. And frankly, they don't want you to know why. Why is it important? Why do sometimes people not want you to know of their need? It's embarrassing. I mean, think about where you all live. If you don't have any, if you go without in Wheaton, the way people are treated here is utterly anti-Christ. Because in Wheaton, the mentality is, if I have more, I'm better. Not a, not on a whole, but, but that's a good majority of the people here. And we've created an environment oftentimes in the church. It's not just this church, it's all the surrounding churches where people who actually don't have anything um, or don't have much feel embarrassed, discouraged, like they can't be part of the church. And I'll tell you the flip side. Who are the easiest people to care for as a pastor? Those who have nothing. Those who have nothing. I can remember when AOR was here. I was up for about three hours with them. And uh, they said, what, what's the major struggle here? I said, the major struggle at a parish in Wheaton, and it's not just our parish. I said, I have many friends who are pastors. The major struggle is people in Wheaton make it difficult by their very lives to give them pastoral care because they always feel like there's really not a problem, or if there's a problem, they can find a way through it. I said, it's great when you go to Gary, Indiana, and you're in the inner city. We went to visit churches, and we stopped in Gary. It was great because everyone there knows they're in need, everyone there knows they don't have anything, and everyone there knows the only true healing will come from Christ and his church. Here, where does true healing come? BMW dealership? I mean, I'm not joking. You know, 401K? Kids at a good college, maybe buy a bigger home, maybe take a long summer vacation, maybe decide you know, what you'd committed to isn't the best idea, so you're going to keep your cash for something else. I mean, that is, not only is that antichrist, but it really prevents pastors from giving people pastoral care. And it's so easy in the early church. Why? Because people are being killed all the time. They don't have their money. They're losing stuff. People who did have stuff saw the need and they gave it. That's part of the struggle. Okay, that's part of the struggle. Yes. Part of the, uh, one of the things that I've noticed too is 
Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, here's the thing. I know lots of very wealthy people who are very spiritually mature and don't depend on anyone but themselves and the Lord, and that's a great blessing. Um, but oftentimes, you're right, that can be the case. And oftentimes, um, it is true that Jesus talks a lot about money in Scripture, and the reason he talks about it is he knows that if you're not spiritually mature, you can mismanage it very quickly. And mismanagement leads you to trust in other things besides him. And that's part of the struggle. Yes? It's very interesting to hear it. This is a very early stage of the organization of the congregation in Jerusalem. Yeah. The apostles got themselves out of that distribution job pretty fast. It was overwhelming. Yeah, they did. Yep, they, yeah, that's a great point, actually. The apostles, yeah. The apostles get out of the distribution job very quickly, not because it wasn't their task, but because of what? They couldn't keep up. But it's interesting. Who do they appoint to take care of that task? The deacons. Are deacons ministers or not ministers? They are ministers. So the task of distributing the goods remains in what? It remains in the administration of the church. And the problem today, I mean, this is great. All of our problems would be solved if we had two things. If you had a bishop and if you had a deacon. If you had a bishop and you had a deacon, you could be the kind of church that Christ wants. The reason we can't do that is um, our tradition hasn't had deacons for a long time, although they are coming back, especially on the East Coast, and our bishops don't really want to be bishops. But do you see how stepping outside the bounds of the way Scripture intends the church can so utterly damage it? It doesn't mean that you all aren't church. It means we struggle to be the kind of church that Christ wants because we're always working with a defective, with a defective model. The way Christ sets up the church is Father sends the Son who puts apostles into place, who are bishops, who ordain pastors, who can't get all the work done but need to keep it in the administration of the clergy. So what do they do? They appoint deacons. Why is money part of the clergy's responsibility because money has deeply spiritual connections. Money is, not sac- money is not secular. Money has deeply spiritual connections. What you do with it shows who you are. And that's the reason it remains in the clergy. And I tell you, all your problems would be solved if you had a bishop who said, I will be bishop, which he won't. And if you had deacons who served the needs of the congregation on a very basic, what you all would probably call sort of a secular level, we don't have that. So now we're working with a bad model. So how are we going to get out of that? Okay? I do want to wrap up because we're already at 11.02 and we've got to get to church. Do you have anything, Pastor? Okay. Let's close. Um, well, that was good. We got through one point. <laughs> Thank you for keeping up the pace. Uh, <laughs> we got two weeks left. I love you. This is going to be great. I know it's... Believe me, here's the main thing. Um, you all need to ask all the questions you've got, and I need to give you all the answers i got. And as I said last week, all my answers will be from Scripture and the Lutheran Confessions. Um, there are lots of other places to get answers, and they're very good, but I'm not going to give those. The other thing is, the reason I'm so passionate about this is because this is a matter of life and death. The Lutheran Church cannot survive if we don't carry on in the way that Jesus wants us to carry on. It's been a blessing that we've done it for 150 or 160 years or whatever it's been. We are not that good. Not just us. Lutheranism on a whole. We've got to get back to what Christ wants. That's the reason I'm so passionate about this. Because to live in unfaithfulness and know it's unfaithful is the worst sin a person can commit. 
and we got to get back on the right track. Okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.